Welcome back to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Ryan, joined by Andre Ganuela. Andre, having a good weekend so far? What have you been up to? I am. I was just at church. Our church is next to a beach, so I walked by the beach a bit. Uh, I'm really hungry, though, so I have a nice plate of biryani leftovers that I have warmed up while we record this. So I'm going to run over and do that right after we end well, that this. That sounds much better than, than my day filled with preparing for my basically my last week of the, the fall semester of law school, just inundated in readings and trying to catch up. Uh, so in no beach in sight. Yeah, you look dead. Oh, thank you. It's uh, it's it's dark outside. It's so you know, it's I'm going to blame it on. And your future is dark, too. <laughs> All right, whatever. <laughs> we are here today to uh, introduce a fantastic episode with General Stanley McChrystal, uh, who has a, a quite an incredible, incredible career. We actually had him on the podcast previously. Uh, in but January. In January. Yeah. But today we're here to discuss his fantastic book, Risk. Andre, you want to set it up? So yeah, so let me just talk a bit about General McChrystal. I mean, he's an awesome guy. He had a three-decade-long career in the U.S. Army. He retired in 2010 as a four-star general, commander of the International Security Assistance Forces in Afghanistan, was the director of the Joint Staff and commander of the Joint Special Operations Command, which was the leading premier counterterrorism force. He is very well known for killing, for basically leading the efforts that killed al-Qaeda and Iraq leader al-Zarqawi. Uh, he is just, I mean, one of the most famous generals alive, frankly, in many people's viewpoints, developed a massively great comprehensive counterinsurgency strategy in Afghanistan. And currently he is a co-founder of the McChrystal Group, which does a lot of leadership consulting. And he is the author of great books like My Share of the Task, Team of Teams, and Leaders. But today we're going to be talking about his great new book, Risk, A User's Guide. Uh, he talks about the concept of risk. Certainly, he's faced risk in his career in the army. He probably consults with different leaders and different organizations about you know risks. But this book, Ryan, is quite unique because a lot of the time when we talk about risk in the private sector or the public sector, we talk about what are the potential risks, right, Ryan? You know, right? What are the potential risks? What could happen? This book is different because it talks about how you respond to risk. You know, you can talk about, you know, what risks exist, but how do you respond to risk? How do you manage risk? How do you manage when that 5% chance of something going wrong actually happens? Exactly. And I think even more importantly to that is how do you mitigate risk? How do you prepare your, yourself and your team to basically confront risk. And so the whole kind of second part of his book is about explaining and developing what he terms as risk control factors. There's 10 of them. Uh, a, a lot of them we discuss in the book because they're interrelated to one another. And we basically use uh, this episode to apply his book to the case of Afghanistan, which of course is, was just filled with risks. Uh, both, you know, as as we went into Afghanistan and throughout the entire twenty year campaign, and especially in in the withdrawal from Afghanistan, a uh, risk literally at at every turn. And so, uh, it was truly a fantastic conversation with General McChrystal to discuss how the U.S. in looking back could have maybe had different decision making, but also on the ground during his experiences, how he used the risk control factors. Uh, to mitigate risk, to deal with risk, but also where you know there were mistakes made because maybe he didn't address some of the risk factors. 
And he talks about in the interview how he may not have necessarily understood some of you know, what goes on with risk, certain risk control factors and so on during his service in Afghanistan, which I really appreciate. He was very candid and sort of forthright in this interview. But uh, I mean, in preparing for this interview, Ryan, I mean, I was watching a lot of these other interviews that he had done. A lot of people were obviously asking him first about Afghanistan, his thoughts about the war and the drawdown and so on. And then they sort of talk about the book. We wanted to take a different approach obviously, because we know that risk is very much involved with Afghanistan. So we wanted to go through the principles of the book and then apply it into Afghanistan because I really haven't heard too many interviews of maybe of him talking about it through the lens of the book. And the book was just published again and I think it was written before the drawdown. So we were able to maybe add another chapter to the book, which you all should go and get. It's a great book, a great user's guide. So yeah, so I think for now, it's uh, here's the interview. So General, broadly speaking, how do you understand risk and what actually motivated you to really write this book? Yeah, it uh, really came from the idea that I maybe didn't understand risk as well as I thought I did. I went through a career in which we tried to learn about risk. We sometimes tried to codify it, create matrices or, or ways to measure it. But then I found decisions made often on a very different basis, a much more subjective basis. So I really wanted to study risk and get my mind around it and see why we, we struggle so much with it. As you can see, the title is Ambitious, Risk a User's Guide. And the idea is everyone's a user of risk. None of us can be completely away from risk. But, but what we're trying to do is make ourselves think about risk in a way that we didn't before. So, sir, there are certainly different ways in which individuals will approach and manage risk and also how in institutions and organizations. And so is there a meaningful difference between how an individual and an organization, which, of course, is made up of individuals, approaches and manages risk? Yeah, there is. But I don't think it's huge. I think we go back to what risk really is. If if I was defining risk during most of my life, I would have said it was the intersection of the probability of something happening and the consequences if it does. So if I go up on my roof, what's the likelihood I'll fall off? And if I do fall off, will I be hurt? But now I think about it differently. Now I think about it almost like a mathematical equation. Threats times vulnerabilities equals risk. And I'm not good at math, so that's as, as difficult a equation is I'll put forth. But what it means is, if I have threats out there, and I can drive them to zero, I can do away with all my threats. I've got no risk because anything's times zero is zero. But I don't live in that world and neither do you. We not only can't drive our threats to zero, we can't even predict them that well. We've proven that time and again. That makes the other part of that, the equation important, vulnerabilities. Now, we can't control all of our vulnerabilities to threats that might arise, but we have a lot more agency over that than anything else. We can make ourselves more ready to take on risks of all kinds, threats that emerge. And so if we can drive our vulnerabilities down, obviously the resulting product risk is going to be smaller. So if you think about that and you apply this to whether individuals or groups, I think you get the biggest payoff at the group level 
Because when you start to understand that vulnerabilities can be addressed by groups, by the things that they do to make themselves, and I use the term risk fit, make themselves more ready to take on different threats that arise, then suddenly I think you've got the ability to really make a big difference in an organization's effectiveness. So General, you talk a bit about the risk immune system in your book quite a bit. Can you sort of explain to our audience what that actually is? Sure. A few years ago, I was approached by this brilliant Yale immunologist. And she came to my office and she said, I think the human immune system is like counterinsurgency. And I just looked at her with that look of someone who doesn't know the human immune system at all. I said, well, what do you know about counterinsurgency? And she says, not much. And I said, okay. But she knew enough to describe the human immune system to me and link it to counterinsurgency. And basically, to understand the human immune system, it's a miracle. Each of us has a miracle in our bodies. Because every day, about 10,000 microorganisms are ingested into us any one of which could make us sick or kill us. But we don't get up in the morning worried about our human immune system. We just kind of take it for granted because it detects those threats as they're ingested. It assesses each one on whether it's dangerous to us. It responds usually by killing them. And then it learns from that process so it's better at it with that threat next time. So as a consequence, this cycle just goes on on a daily basis. And the only time we're really worried about our immune system is when it isn't working. We've got autoimmune deficiency. For example, nobody ever died of HIV AIDS. They died because their immune system was weakened so badly that some other threat that normally wouldn't have hurt them comes and kills them. And that's what made it so hard to understand at the beginning of that. But if you've got a human immune system like this, you say, well, what does that got to do with organizations and typical risk? Well, I would argue that every organization and actually every individual, but we'll stay focused on organizations right now, has the equivalent of a human immune system that we'll call a risk immune system. And we have described it as having 10 factors that make it up. Communication, narrative, action, timing, leadership. And there are a number of others. And they work together in a holistic way for the organization to be able to detect threats, respond to them, uh, or assess them, respond to them, and then learn from that process on a constant basis. And so if the organization can do that, it doesn't have to spend all its time understanding and being perfect and predicting exactly what risks are going to come and when they're going to come, because that's almost impossible. Instead, we've created this resilience that is so important in our ability to move forward. So, sir, you have these 10 risk control factors that you outlined in the book, and I don't want you to go through all of them necessarily because I want our listeners to go buy your book and, and learn about them. But are there any that are more important than others, that some that you maybe prioritize, um, some risk control factors that are uh, consequential ab above others? Yeah, I'm going to hit on three that probably jump out. The first is communication, because any organization that cannot communicate is dead in the water. In the military, when you want to defeat a foe, the first thing you do is cut off their communication. Then they can't coordinate. They can't respond. And so that's almost table stakes for someone to have an ability to, to actually respond to risks. The second I jump at is narrative. We don't talk about that as much. And a narrative is 
what we say about ourselves to ourselves and to other people. If you think about the narrative of the United States of America, it has traditionally been one of liberty, rights, the idea that being a citizen of the United States gets you these inalienable rights. But in 1957, then Vice President Richard Nixon went to Ghana for the day of their independence. And he ran into a black man and he was making conversation and he says, so how does it feel to be free? And the man turned to him and said, I wouldn't know, I'm from Alabama. And in that moment, that individual probably stunned the vice president, but he also pointed out a problem in the narrative of the United States because that is the narrative of the United States, freedom and rights. But yet for many Americans, that was only aspirational in 1957 and arguably for too many, it still is. So there was a gap between what the nation said and and advertised about itself and what the reality was. So whenever we have a disconnect in our narrative, we have a vulnerability because it creates a certain amount of doubt and cynicism. Uh, Back a few years ago, Google, the corporation, started doing Defense Department work. And for most corporations, that's no big deal. But the reality is they had a value in the company that was characterized by the phrase, don't be evil. And a number of people in Google felt that don't being evil meant you don't work with the Department of Defense. And so what they found was they had a disconnect in how people interpreted the don't be evil and the narrative of that with what they were actually doing. And it caused them huge problems inside the company. So I think that narrative becomes critical. And finally, the last one I would throw out is action. And that's the ability to act. And you say, well, we can all act. We act every day. There's an awful lot of time we don't act. We have inertia. Inertia has an object at rest, remains at rest, or an object in motion remains in motion in the same direction and velocity unless force is impacted. How many times do we have an organization just continues to do what it's doing because it's easier than changing? And inertia can can cause us to miss opportunity or be vulnerable in ways that are dramatically uh, dangerous to us. So General, I really appreciated your book just because for me, as someone who's really trying to, you know, break into the field of national security and foreign policy, it sort of acts like a textbook of risk. I mean, it's in the title, A User's Guide to Risk. So I really want to try and see if we can apply the principles that you outlined, the risk immune system, the risk control factors, onto the topic of Afghanistan, the drawdown and the broader war, which you have much experience with, of course. But before that, in terms of applying this to our national security and defense communities, what's your take on how those communities, how the larger U.S. government in this sphere handles risk right now? I think we probably think we handle it pretty well, and I think we probably don't handle it very well at all. And it starts in many cases with defining what the actual risk is. I use an example in the book. In Afghanistan, there were instructions that every soldier who went off a military installation had to wear their body armor, and not only wear their body armor, but all the pieces of body armor that were issued to them. And that guidance was reflected if there was a casualty report put in, you had to list on the casualty report all the body armor that the individual was wearing in that moment. 
Now, that's a well-intentioned direction that says, of course you would. It'll keep soldiers safer. But you can't walk to 12,000 feet in an Afghan mountain carrying or wearing body armor. It's just not practical. Similarly, there are many things when you're interacting with Afghans, if you're wearing body armor, you're sending an unintended message that you're more important than they are, that your well-being is of more value than theirs is because they don't have body armor. And so if we look at the risk, if we think of the risk in a narrow sense, the risk to me is my physically being hurt, but we compare that to the risk we will fail in the mission. That's the kind of place where I think we sometimes get confused. We can't step back and say, what is the overall requirement and what is the risk to our ability to accomplish that? So if we, uh, as Andre mentioned, apply the case of Afghanistan or apply your, your guide to Afghanistan, is the, is the fall of Afghanistan uh, just a failure in handling risk, right? What key features or what key failures in the risk control factors have you observed in the, in the aftermath? Of course, it's very difficult to you know, do to prepare for risk for any situation. So, that, I mean, that is the challenge is, you know, that's why you wrote the book is so that you people can prepare. But let's do, I guess, an after action uh, assessment uh, and, and understand whether or not this could have been prevented. Yeah. I'm, and what I'm going to do, Ryan, is I'm going to separate two things because one is the failure in Afghanistan, and that is of the entire 20 year effort, which to me is the really important part. And then the second part is, all the difficulties in the last couple of months. And I'm gonna, for right now, I'm going to focus on those last couple of months because we talk about risk. Let's set up the situation. The risk at that point was no longer of whether the policy in Afghanistan was going to fail. The decision had been made with the Doha Accords that the United States was going to withdraw its military forces. We hadn't made the decision to withdraw diplomats at that point but to pull out. And so a decision had been made that our foreign policy objectives were not the most important thing at that point. Or let's put it this way, the objective had changed, and that is to be out of Afghanistan. So once you sign the Doha Accords, for about 18 months, you've got a situation where the Taliban have agreed not to attack Americans because America has promised to to pull its forces out on date certain, 1 May 2021. And so as you move closer to that, you have a change in administrations. Now you have President Biden takes over in early 2021, and he's faced with this decision. And the decision is, do I continue with the agreement, in which case I have a political risk, because if I am the president when we completely pull out of Afghanistan and there is a resurgence of terrorist sanctuary there, then I will be blamed, even though his predecessor made the agreement. The reality is there's a political risk there. If he doesn't, if he says, no, I've decided not to stick with that agreement, I'm instead going to continue a U.S. military presence there, then he's got two risks. He's got a political risk for people who say he is continuing the forever war and he's violating a political promise that he made. But he's also taking a risk now that the American forces are going to be under greater risk now from the Taliban, because he said, I'm not going to pull those forces out. He made the decision to to continue the withdrawal, and he made that clear in the spring of 2021 that he was going to continue with that. Now the risk is a little different. Now the Taliban aren't incentivized to attack Americans. There is not a good reason for them to attack Americans because they might 
in some way change America's momentum and withdrawal. But ISIS and al-Qaeda are incentivized to attack Americans. In fact, for their credibility and their ability to recruit in the region, them attacking Americans effectively is very much a key objective. So you've got a 2,500-person force, and you're trying to draw that down and get it out safely, realizing that as the smaller the force gets, the less it has the ability to defend itself and therefore becomes more vulnerable to attack. And so you say, well, what's the best way to make that work? You can either go slowly and deliberately, or you can try to do it very quickly so that you can essentially get ahead and give them a smaller window of time in which you can attack. Now, where I think things really got knocked into a cocked hat here was there was an expectation that the government of Afghanistan would be more durable than it turned out to be. And therefore, they would be able to maintain a certain level of security across the country. And so Bagram could be evacuated to the north of Kabul and Kabul airport, because remember, there are only 2,500 U.S. forces there now. And so you don't need multiple airfields to get out. And if you try to maintain a presence inside the capital of Kabul and use Bagram, it's logistically difficult. So all these armchair quarterbacks were saying, why didn't we do this, this? Let's just go through the numbers. So as they try to to draw down the 2,500 people, and then unexpectedly, the government of Afghanistan collapses faster than, than many people had calculated. Now you've got this situation where the optic on TV looks like absolute chaos, defending the area because the Taliban aren't yet able to provide real security They're not as the new government of Afghanistan. So you've got a threat from ISIS and al-Qaeda, which we did see some of that come. And then you've got the requirement to get a lot of people out. So it looks like an abs- it looked like a chaotic mess. I would argue that it was a pretty difficult endeavor. And the the probably the biggest thing you could criticize is getting the calculation on the survival of the government of Afghanistan right or wrong. People I think know that the Taliban didn't conquer Afghanistan. The government of Afghanistan imploded and the Taliban occupied Afghanistan. The people had done a mental calculation that was inevitable. So who wants to fight on, against something that's going to be inevitable? So they, they walked away. And there are lots of reasons for that that really go back into the previous 20 years. So I guess the risk is when I look at this, I'm a little bit forgiving because it was a pretty hard calculus to get. And with a turn of a card, it could have been very different. And then one other thing I'd throw the risk on, <clears throat> because there's been a lot of discussion about the, the predator strike that, that hit the vehicle that turned out to be a family. And we say, why didn't they know? Why, didn't, why weren't they more careful in their intelligence on that? Well, let's go back to the scenario there, too. It's one thing if you are trying to go after a a terrorist leader, and they are in the mountains of Afghanistan or in the northern or the northwest uh, frontier provinces of Pakistan, because if you don't get right intelligence on day one, you can go after them tomorrow. You can go after them the next day. There's not this press, this momentary press of time. But remember, there had been an attack at the airfield already, and many people had lost their lives, including 13 Americans. So suddenly they have intelligence about a specific car 
And I can imagine the person who's got actually got the finger on the trigger on that one, because if they don't shoot and that car turns out to be a terrorist car bomb and it goes to the airfield, which wasn't very far away, and it causes another big car bomb, then suddenly, you know, that's a huge risk come to fruition. And so what does that person do? Do they have to be 100% sure? Or do they just say the risk of the one outcome is so great that I've got to take the shot? And again, those are those are very difficult calls. Very tough decisions indeed. And I mean, as I was reading about the risk control factors, uh, I started hypothesizing that perhaps three risk control factors in particular affected uh, sort of our handling of the fall of Afghanistan. And I think you illustrated how narrative and leadership sort of illustrate this. But I was wondering, uh, what are your thoughts on the applicability of bias? Bias affecting our perception of the actual situation on the ground. Is this actually applicable to this situation? Because as you said, uh, we did not necessarily anticipate what had you know gone wrong with the Afghan government would actually go wrong. Yeah, Andre, I think that's a, a good observation on your part. But I think we got to start by making sure we clarify what I mean by bias in the book. I'm not talking about bias like racism or that kind of bias. I'm talking about any bias that changes the way you perceive something. And we all have biases for all kinds of things. And some don't really create any harm. Some are very harmful. But the reality is they're almost like fog on your glasses. So you don't see things as clearly as it needs to be. So I would argue that we had that problem. One, we have a problem because we are seeing it through different cultural glasses. We're seeing it as Americans. I would also argue that we, we take information from people who have a relationship from us or with us. So we take it from Afghan intelligence and whatnot. And their information is likely to be slanted based upon their biases. And I would throw another risk control factor in here in diversity, in that I think we lacked a range of perspectives. So we were getting information from certain sources, and our biases were leading us to certain conclusions. And I think a wider span of perspectives. So you're seeing things from different angles, people with different you know, biases, throwing it in would probably have given us a richer understanding of what that. So I would argue that those things work. And then the final part of it, and in the book, we talk about leaders like President Carter, when he approved the Iran rescue mission in early 1980, he desperately wanted a certain outcome. He desperately wanted to rescue the Americans held hostage in Tehran. So he was spring loaded to take in the information that would give him and process us in a certain way. I would argue we very much wanted the Afghan government to survive permanently, but if they didn't survive permanently, we very much wanted the conclusion to be that they will survive long enough. Because if the conclusion had been, let's say in the early spring of 2021, if intelligence people had said the Afghan government will collapse in 10 days to two weeks, therefore any evacuation we do is going to be under these conditions it would have made that planning very, very difficult. And so that's an unconscious, it's not an evil bias to want to assume that, no, the worst won't happen. Uh, and, and sometimes the worst does happen. 
So, sir, I want to go back for a second and talk about the Doha agreement because uh, I think, at least as Andre and I were reading it, we kind of saw the, the myth of helplessness uh, in that sort of situation. Of course, uh, the, the Biden administration said that they had to abide by that agreement. Many have said that you know, the agreement was violated um, by, by, by you know, the Taliban, the other side, um, in so doing. So therefore, you wouldn't have to abide by it. And we'll leave the legal um, case outside of this, uh, but and also leave the case of the drawdown and the merits of that outside of this. And so do you see that as, as a part of this myth of helplessness, that because we had this agreement signed, it was just easier uh, to kind of abide by uh, the status quo and engage in it and just say, we can't do anything about it. We're helpless. Yeah, I think we all fall prey to that a little bit. I think on the one hand, I'd start with a lot of people say we failed in Afghanistan because it's the graveyard of empires and it's impossible. And what that does is it says we made a bad decision to go in and then it forgives everything else we did because it says well, it was impossible. I don't subscribe to that. I think it wasn't impossible. And, and if we failed, we failed, of which I was a part of that. And I accept my part of the responsibility. So it gets to the myth, myth of helplessness, as you described with Doha. I think in the case of the Doha agreement, remember that President Biden, as vice president, desperately wanted to reduce our commitment in Afghanistan. He was very clear in his statements on that as he ran as a candidate. He was clear that he wanted to end the forever war. He wanted America out of Afghanistan for lots of reasons that he articulated and that, that I don't criticize. I might view it differently, but he was very upfront. So when he took over, uh, the Doha agreement gave him another reason to continue the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I think had there been no Doha agreement, it's very likely President Biden would have still withdrawn American forces. I don't know that, but, I'm, but I, based on what he's said and done before, I think that that's likely. But I think you're right. You can sometimes grab onto something as almost a legalese way of saying, it's not my fault. And the reality is those things aren't the driver. We could have abrogated that agreement had we wanted to, but we didn't want to. So, General, I now want to sort of shift the conversation into a sort of talking about the longer war in Afghanistan, including the years that you served in. And you mentioned diversity in talking about the fall as one of the risk control factors that perhaps we did not have a complete hold on. And now enhancing diversity and, you know, you il illustrate what diversity is in your view in the book. But we, we mentioned diversity as a buzzword, as a big topic in national security. And we've discussed this idea of diversity on the podcast at length in other episodes. Uh, were the U.S. armed forces satisfactorily, satisfactorily using diversity, using this control factor in its operations in Afghanistan, for example, diversity in identity, religion, ethnicity, and cultural competencies, and then, of course, diversity in thought. Were we actually successful in using that in your view, now looking back? No, I don't think we were. And interestingly enough, I think from the beginning, we sort of knew we weren't. If you think about the American military experience in, well, any previous war, it wasn't as evident in World War II or Korea, but certainly very evident during the Vietnam War. When America goes somewhere and undertakes a war, it is more than just a slugging match between military forces. It becomes also uh, a cultural interaction. Think about the Americans who are in 
Britain for two years before the invasion of Normandy. We don't talk about it a lot now. There was a lot of friction between the Americans and the Brits who resented better paid Americans. They used to say that their American soldiers, the problem with them is they were better paid. Uh, no, they were uh, oversexed and over here. And the reality is that when we went into Afghanistan, we didn't have the, the people with the varied perspectives that you need. Now, typically we talk about diversity, we fall prey to say we don't have enough minorities or females or something like that. What you're really talking about is different experiences, expertise, perspectives. That's what you need to bring into the room. And so we came into Afghanistan with almost nobody speaking Dari or Pashto. And during World War II, the numbers I've read, we trained more than 5,200 Americans to become fluent in Japanese. And yet during 20 years in Afghanistan, I'm going to guess we trained something like 100 Americans to be fluent in Dari and Pashto, truly fluent. And we just didn't make the kind of investment that you need to make to develop that diverse set of capabilities to bring the right kinds of personalities involved. We had rotations of people. We were trying to solve many of the problems with a very military uh, structure. And many of those problems were not a military problem. They were essentially social problems, problems of governance, problems of you know, economics and whatnot. And yet we tried to solve them you know, the man with the hammers or man with the hammers always looking for a nail. And it wasn't because we were evil and it wasn't because we didn't know that was a problem. It was because the inertial momentum of the way the U.S. government operates with the way personnel assignments operate, with the way training operates, with the way promotion system operate, with a whole number of things cause us to be a freight train that runs on certain tracks. And it's really hard to get it off it. And I don't know how many conversations I was in with soldiers and with other people there saying how much better we could be if we could only do things a bit differently. And the retort would be, well, why don't you do them differently? And then suddenly you realize the difficulty. In the summer of 2008, I came out of the counterterrorist force and was assigned to the Pentagon. And during that next year, we created something called the Afghan Hands Program. And the Afghan Hands program was designed to create a cadre of American service members deeply familiar with Afghanistan and the Pakistan Northwest uh, frontier provinces. And we, the, the plan was to take about 500 members from all the different services, send them to language school, then send them to a tour in Afghanistan, then bring them back to the United States for an Afghanistan-related assignment and then send them back again. And people used to say, what we're really trying to do is create a group of Lawrence of Arabia's. And, you know, that's a simplification. But the idea was create people who had relationships, who had credibility, who were truly familiar. And when we started to do that, you'd have been disappointed. All of the military services, every one of them, slow rolled the effort, even though the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the Secretary of Defense directed it. And the way they slow rolled it was they said, okay, well, we have to provide, let's say, 150 people from Service X. They put out the word that if you wanted to volunteer for this program, you could, but it was at great risk to your career because you probably would be taken out of your normal specialty. You wouldn't be able to be 
uh, effective going forward. And so you essentially sacrificing your career, which guarantees that the best and brightest are only going to volunteer if they're just, dis- they make this decision. And some did. And then supporting of assignments. So it's our own bureaucracy. And I'm not saying that the services were evil. I think the, the outcome was evil. But what they were doing is they were saying, we've got to protect the professional development of our service members. You know, therefore, we got to protect them from doing something that will hurt their career development. My argument was the services exist to win wars and we're about to lose a war. We're about to lose a war because we don't have the skills we need. And yet we want to stick to the skills we either have or want to have, even when it is absolutely self-defeating in the problem at hand. And so I would argue that unable to create that diversity, and in this case, I would say the inability to overcome inertia became very, very painful. Sir, I want to take a quick departure from Afghanistan and just talk about a, a, a emerging case of risk, and that being China. Uh, of course, I, I mean, it concerns me that the, the U.S. military was not prepared and did not take the steps, as you've outlined, uh, to win the war in Afghanistan. And so as we're preparing for a potential conflict with China, um, how, what would you recommend our policymakers and our military leaders do in order to do that? Do we need to have Mandarin study? Do we need to have the study of Chinese history and culture? Do engaging those certain things, or are there other areas uh, in which that you see as being beneficial as well? Yeah, I think there's, and there are a lot of smart people looking at this. So I don't want to pretend that I can be prescriptive to them. But the reality is, we have to start with an understanding of what China is doing, and it's very different from what China has been doing for the 72 years since you know, the the People's Army won the the Civil War, 1949. The reality is they have been on this sort of exponential growth in capability, economically, political stability and whatnot, and now militarily. In the last decade or so, their military capacity has expanded exponentially. And so they now have the ability to do things that we could almost discount their effectiveness at you know, even just, you know, a decade or so ago. And so the reality is, first, we have to understand that. They are a united country under a president for life with a very authoritarian regime and a juggernaut economy right now behind it. And so they are a very real competitor. Are they an opponent? No, because we're not at war. But the reality is they are the kind of competitor that could be a really difficult adversary in war. So we're going to have to do several things. One is first to understand that and understand that in a way that is current, not dated. I think second is we're going to have to understand future war. And I don't think anybody really knows what the next war will be like. We have to extrapolate. And some of that is educated guesses. I think the first thing is understanding that things like artificial intelligence and information warfare will likely be the tail that wags the dog. And what I mean by that is if you can go in and cripple an opponent's systems or just influence an opponent's mind, i.e. the population, suddenly the the rest of the war is much less important. If the Chinese could come in and they could sow doubt in the American public, as the Russians did during the 2016 election so effectively, if they could sow doubt in our leadership, if they could any number of things, or if they could interrupt 
things like our power grids or our banking system, even for short periods. And they did it. And then they basically said, you didn't like that, did you? Well, we can do that again. We don't want you to defend Taiwan, for example. And suddenly America is in that position. Wow, do I really want to accept this level of damage and potential risk? So I think we need to get our heads around what that next war will be like and start preparing for that in a way that I don't think we are doing right now. And then finally, on the actual just what the kinetic part of war would look like, artificial intelligence is going to drive things to speeds like hypersonic weapons guided by artificial intelligence that's going to give it a different rhythm than it ever had before. And that rhythm is going to be, I think, frighteningly fast. And so we've got to look at our own decision-making processes and, and where we make decisions, who makes them and how they're made, because I think we could find ourselves too slow for a very quickly emerging situation uh, against a foe like China. Absolutely. I mean, learning from our previous experiences is crucial in preparing for future threats. Uh, but I do want to return the conversation back to Afghanistan uh, and, and talk about the Taliban, because as, as you talked about, understanding your, uh, your adversary is, is crucial and it's paramount in, in winning a conflict. But if we flip that on its head, did the Taliban understand us? Did they understand our mission, our readiness, our force posture? Did they leverage risk control factors in their operations? that eventually led to the successful takeover of Afghanistan? Uh, I think they did. I'm not sure that they got in a room with a whiteboard and, and mapped it out. I think part of it was intuitive, but, but I describe it this way. When the Taliban were toppled in the fall of 2001, they were disoriented. And the first things we saw and heard from them was many of them were prepared to make an accommodation with the new government if they'd been given an opportunity to do that. And I think that was a missed chance for us. But about 2003, they started seeing a couple of things that gave them hope. One is that there was a gap between the ability of the new government of Afghanistan and what support it was getting from the West, which was pretty modest at that point. There was a big gap between what the Afghan people were hoping for and what they were actually seeing. There was more corruption at the local level. There was less ability to deliver any services. There were not very competent security forces on the part of the Afghans, and there's a very small number of Western forces. So the reality was the security situation wasn't robust, the economy wasn't moving fast, and the government was really floundering. So the Taliban perceived an opportunity, and they, they used that opportunity by going into villages and basically saying, people, you're not really better off, are you? And in fact, the Americans have come in and started spending money, but it's all going to this other tribe who lives down the street in the village. And, you, and they'd go to the, uh, the disgruntled parts of it, and they would leverage that argument. But then the other subtle part was really the strength of the Taliban narrative. And the Taliban narrative was something like this. We are the rightful uh, religious and cultural organization to run the country. We are the same argument that they'd made in 1994 when they came in is we have to sweep out the corrupt warlords that at that point during the Afghan civil war were just, you know, really leaving the country in terrible shape. And so this idealistic, very honest group of young people come out of the, the uh, madrasas in Pakistan and they sweep like a clean broom. 
And so in 2003, they come back and they make the argument that we are that again. And it wasn't totally true, but it was an argument. And then the other argument was we have proximity, i.e. we are here. We will always be here, no matter what happens, even if the Americans stay a, an absurdly long time for a foreign force, which we ended up doing, we're still going to be here the day after that. And so the narrative became, we are inevitable. And unless the government of Afghanistan could create enough fabric of legitimacy to contest that, that, that inevitability became very, very powerful. And we played into it because we were always communicating for multiple audiences, we the West, but particularly the United States. We were communicating first to our domestic political audience, which leaders had to always say, we're going to get out soon. As soon as we can, we're going to get out. In Afghanistan, that played very differently than it did in the United States. In the United States, it says, okay, we're going to get out. In Afghanistan, it scared the Afghans who were dependent upon us, and it emboldened the Taliban because they say if we wait long enough, they're going to get out. They say they are. And so understanding that you've got uh, different audiences that you are communicating to, and sometimes your message works in contradiction to it, what you wanted to. So General, during your service in Afghanistan, which I might notice is very distinguished and very important, uh, were there any instances under in your command where you failed to address the risk control factors, for example, maybe timing or action or leadership, and where that failure perhaps uh, sort of complicated the mission goals. And what did you learn from this experience? Because I think you said earlier in the interview that, you know, you wrote this book because you may not have necessarily understood, you know, all about risk during your command. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Obviously, I've thought about this for years now. And the answer is we did get a number of things wrong. I've never gone through the drill of connecting them right to the risk control factors, but I, I can start now. I think the first is one that you talked about earlier, and that is bias. And that is uh, me as a leader and our force are biased to want things to happen because we're willing to work for them. So for example, in the counterinsurgency effort that we put forth, there were three main pillars, a security element, an economic element and a governance element. And you need to make progress in all three to win the support of the people. We were able to make progress in the security element because we had more control over that. And we put more forces in, you can do that. The economic part, we were able to make short-term progress in places by applying uh, resources. But in the governance part, where we were really trying to build up Afghan capability to provide government all the way down to the district level. We, we were biased in wanting it to work so badly that I would say we were probably unrealistic in our expectations of how effectively it would work. I was frankly disappointed by just how slowly it went and just that their inability to, even at the, the highest level, to get any kind of real unity. You know, and I can't criticize too much. We've got so much divisiveness in our own political system right now. But the reality was, you'd think that in a, a period of existential threat like they were, that you'd be able to wrest out more corruption and uh, dysfunction than we did. So there was a bias part of that. The diversity thing we, always, we already talked about. And then I think, as you mentioned earlier, the narrative. 
while we worked very hard to have a narrative that we were communicating to the NATO alliance forces, the 46 nations in the coalition and inside the force and whatnot, there was always a, a series of misalignments in the narrative. There was always a sense by different players that maybe we were really trying to do different things. And there didn't seem to be as much commitment on the narrative. Even inside the US government, there were different views from the State Department, in some cases from DOD, on how we wanted to go. And that misalignment's always weakness. And it's, again, it's not always, you know, there's, there's no evil doer there. It was mostly good people working hard trying to get a good outcome. But the problem is that doesn't make it any better. If you're still misaligned and you can't pull it together, then you've got fatal flaws. And I would say that misaligned there, back on the things we talked about, the military services were more interested in what was important for the organization of the military service than they were about the outcome in Afghanistan. They, they, they almost don't know that. It's unconscious. But you, you, you maintain policies and you do things because they support the overall organization, even if it's fatal to other things you're trying to do. And so those are the weaknesses. You know, I know we're going to have this over the next few years, we'll have this uh, great reckoning where we try to figure out who lost China. Remember that great question that came after 1949? And they tried to pin it on somebody. And somebody's going to come out and say, who lost Afghanistan? And if we find somebody and pin it on them, it's going to be an absolute mistake because we, all of us, allowed a number of things to occur in ways and processes and culture and whatnot that made us less effective than we needed to be. So there, I can't find a single policy decision or a single policymaker to whom I can hang all this stuff on. There's no critical moment when we lost. We lost it over time because of so many things about the way we operate. And that should give us more pause because we can't go fire a single person or hang it on. We've actually got to make fundamental changes in the way we approach things. And that's what I think is in front of us as a major uh, task. Absolutely. And it's not like it was all for nothing, right? We, there are certainly many accomplishments and advantages to our, our mission in Afghanistan. And so despite us, quote unquote, losing uh, the war, there were some great programs that we put into place and the advancements that we made for the for the Afghan people and for the region and for U.S. and, and NATO security. And so uh, I'd love for you to kind of take that question and then reverse it and talk about uh, some of the accomplishments, some of the ways in which you took these risk control factors and then applied them positively. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting because there is a tendency to say, well, if I did something and it came out poorly, it must have been a bad decision to either do it or I did it poorly. There's a certain amount of chance in everything. And so the reality is I judge decisions on two things, the values that a person, decision maker or decision makers use in making them, and then also the rationality of the probability of the outcome. Did that, was it a reasonably good bet to make based upon the likely probabilities? And did they do it for the right reasons? In the first one, I think we, we went to Afghanistan for the right reasons. And we tried to do the right things. The second is on the probability, 
we probably are less defensible there because in some cases, I think we ignored some of the probabilities stacked against us, but not in every case. But as your point, we did at certain times in that uh, effort understand that what we were trying to do was solve a bigger problem. We were trying to make Afghanistan a bigger, a better place. Now, a lot of people would have an impassioned argument that says, no, 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 we went to get Al-Qaeda and we wanted to to get them and, and solve that problem. And in a very narrow sense, that's true. But Al-Qaeda could go anywhere, and they have gone anywhere else. They've gone to a number of other places as, as ISIS. So I think the much greater actual long-term value in a mission was in trying to make Afghanistan society move in a good direction for a period of time, because that will have an effect on the world. It won't be the only thing that determines the future of the world, what Afghanistan does, but it does matter. And Afghanistan's a very different place than it was 20 years ago. Education moved along. The young people make up more than half the population. And the reality is they are not going to be happy with a Taliban regime that looks anything like from 1996 to 2001. So they're going to pressure that regime to do things differently. And I think that regime will either change the way they operate or they'll have a very difficult time. So I think a lot of the things we did there produced some pretty good outcomes. The problem is that if you can't tie them to a clear narrative, clear objectives and all, it's it's harder to make an argument that, yeah, that was a good thing. And I'm, I certainly wouldn't try to tell anybody, yes, Afghanistan was a glowing success overall. But Vietnam, you know, as bad as that was, now Vietnam's a very legitimate trading partner with us and, and member of the world community. So I'm hopeful that Afghanistan can get there in, in a reasonable amount of time. So General, can you briefly tell us about some of the solutions that you outlined towards the end of the book to manage risk? Uh, are there any that are more important than others that we had to keep you know, in mind of? And then sort of my sub question is with Afghanistan, you know, when this situation began to go south, uh, was it ever too late to apply those solutions that you're going to talk about? Yeah. And what you described, we took the last part of the book And after we had made an argument about what the challenge with risk is, and then how the risk control factors form a risk immune system that you need to keep fit, we wanted to give organizations and leaders a chance to, well, how do I actually do that? So we offer a number of what we call solutions, such as after action reviews and assumptions checks and red team exercises. And they are reflective of a number of things an organization can do before a threat actually approaches before a crisis arises, and they can make the organization stronger and more effective. There are things like a red team exercise is a case where you develop a plan and you typically fall in love with your plan and everybody wants to do it because it's your plan. You take an, an outside entity, call you call it a red team, and they basically pressure test your plan. You challenge them to find weaknesses or holes in your plan. There's a famous story from the military exercise Millennium Challenge in 2000, when a Marine Corps general was tasked to be the red team leader and playing a, the part of a Middle East opponent of the United States. At the very beginning of the operation, he attacked American forces before they had offloaded ships and whatnot. He created 
about 20,000 in game terms, 20,000 American casualties and entirely disrupted the American plan. Now, in my view, General Van Riper had done exactly what the military wanted him to do. He, they'd found a vulnerability or he had found a vulnerability in the concept of operation. Instead, the American military said, uh-oh, that was a foul. We're going to back up and start the game over again, and you can't do that. And, you know, you can say if he had cheated or something, that's one thing, but it's the whole idea of pressure testing this plan so that you find out things you can correct before you, you execute, or at least be aware of if you can't correct them. You know I've got a vulnerability there. There's also the thing that the military's used for a long time. It's an after-action review. An after-action review is a, a somewhat formal process to figure out what happened and what do you got to do about it. And it, it came from years ago, military forces would be in firefights. And after the firefight, somebody would say, this is what happened. And then they realized that everyone in the firefight had a different perspective of what happened and a different version of when it happened and who did what, like they'd been in completely different battlefields. So the after-action review started with bringing all the participants together and getting an absolutely accurate picture of what happened, and then identifying those things that went well and those things which didn't, and what do we need to do to get better for next time? Good organizations do that in combat. We did it in Afghanistan and Iraq all the time after real-world combat to be able to, to get better. But those are the kinds of things that organizations can do. And it takes a little bit of time, takes some resources. It's almost like going to the gym. You know, if, if you want to be stronger and less uh, vulnerable to physical injuries, if you eat right, sleep enough, do all those things and work out, you're going to do that. And so these are the equivalent of that that we have offered to organizations as ways that they can get themselves in better shape before threats do arise. And with that, General Cristo, I want to thank you very much for giving us a fantastic overview of how to approach risk. I feel uh, well equipped to detect, assess, respond, and learn from risk in my life. Uh, and again, this is not just a military context. Anyone uh, of any walk of life in any profession, anywhere can apply this user's guide. And so today's conversation speaks for itself, sir. Uh, but please, everyone listening, go out and uh, check out Risk, a user's guide. And as always, uh, General McChrystal, thank you for joining us and for your service. We appreciate it. Ryan, Andre, my honor. And thanks very much for your time today. And that was our episode with General Stanley McChrystal. Andre, uh, truly one of, uh, one of the best episodes I think we've had, just because it, it's something that's so applicable to our daily lives. Anyone listening to the podcast can kind of use this episode to kind of frame uh, how they approach risk, both at, at home, in their home lives, but also in their work lives. Uh, and so I think something that really stuck with me was this myth of helplessness. It's basically the epilogue of his book, which talks about how in many situations, we aren't as helpless as we may perceive ourselves to be. And we applied this to the, to the idea of the withdrawal from Afghanistan in that the administration kind of painted it, the Biden administration painted it as, well, this is the only option is to leave in this manner. Uh, but in kind of all reality, there were other decisions that may have possibly been made but there was a policy decision. And so I, I think it's very important when kind of reflecting on our own lives that we should really consider when we're making decisions, when we're approaching risk, are we really as helpless as we may 
actually be. Yeah, absolutely. And Ryan, I think another big factor he talked about was narrative, right? Like when we, I think when we went into negotiated Doha Accords and we signed that with the Taliban, we sort of lost the ability to control the narrative, right? Because everyone wants to get control of the narrative. But when you lose that ability, you set a new narrative. And the Afghan government, obviously, they had sort of been excluded from these negotiations. They sort of saw a different narrative that the Taliban was going to come in, right? So I thought that was a very interesting factor. But Ryan, do you remember what the general said about diversity? Yes, it's it's actually something that we've been... It's, it's So it's not diversity in the actual sense of the word that you may necessarily be thinking about. Uh, he, of course, talked about the importance of diversity in the sense of different people from different backgrounds, but particularly the focus uh, that we talked about was diversity of thought, ensuring that you have the right people around you so you can make the best decisions, but also ensure that the way you're assessing the situation is, is readily applicable to the risk factors that may be approaching uh, in any situation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that really goes hand in hand with whether, right, like we actually understood Afghanistan, which we touched on in the interview. Uh, and then certainly, I sort of uh, laughed a bit at this. Uh, you know, I think my question, did the Taliban, did Al-Qaeda, did they know how to use the risk control factors? And obviously, you know, they did not understand perhaps the principles of risk, but perhaps some aspects of their strategy could be parallel right, to some of these risk control factors and so on. Uh, and again, I mean, I really appreciate the general's candor in being very honest about where he felt that he screwed up, where he felt that we screwed up uh, and we made mistakes in terms of the longer war in Afghanistan, the drawdown and so on, because I mean, I think that sort of introspection is so valuable. And, and General McChrystal has been outspoken about that in his other interviews and his other books and so on. Yeah. And something I also appreciate, of course, he, he did talk about some of the failures, but uh, any campaign like this also has some accomplishments and successes. And so I thought it was also important for him to highlight those as well, because uh, despite what many have kind of characterized as Afghanistan is basically being just a waste of resources. And, and human life, there were some great things that the U.S. did in, in working with the, the Afghan people. And so despite some of the challenges we've seen, we can't completely write it off. Yeah. And it sort of reminds me of Gina Bennett's interview. Remember, we asked her, you know, was it a waste of time? Was it all for nothing? And she said something that really stuck out to me and paralleled what General McChrystal said in the interview. A lot of these things don't happen overnight. These changes don't happen overnight. But we went and we educated females, we went and educated girls, we sort of bred, I guess, new people who can enact change. The people who live in Afghanistan now are not the same people who were there 25 years ago under Taliban rule. And uh, change doesn't happen overnight, but it can be bred, it can, you know, grow, and so on. And a lot of the stuff that we did, perhaps in a positive sense, in terms of education, and so on, and that sort of taste of democracy, that very well might influence the next generation to come in and be more forceful in their demands for change. I think we saw some of those protests led by women in Afghanistan against the Taliban after the Taliban had taken over. People perhaps, I mean, there is still obviously a culture of fear, but people are more willing to stand up and speak out. And I mean, time will only tell whether they will be successful, but I mean, we'll see, right? I mean, there are plenty of negatives. There are some positives. And it's important to look at that whole picture in understanding the effort in Afghanistan. And so 
With that, uh, we will wrap up today's episode with General McChrystal. Thank you all very much for listening to this week's episode. And be sure to follow us on social media, subscribe, rate, and review to the podcast so you have all the latest updates. Until next time.